Hello, hello, hello. It's good to see you guys. Great to be back here in Elgin. Um, I want to say hi to all the folks who are gathering and uh, at all our campuses. It's great to have you guys join us here. Uh, just so you know, I, I love you guys here in Elgin. I always look forward to it. I don't know why. I get up in the morning and I'm like, oh, I get to move to Elgin today. All right. Let's do this thing. So I'm really excited about it. Um, listen, before, before um, we get into the Word of God, though, I just want to take one quick moment, and I actually would like to pray um, for um, it, it, racial disharmony, to be honest with you. This week, we've had some more shootings, and it seems like it's another one in the long line of people who are motivated on all different sides of races to shoot and hurt people from other races. And... Uh, you know, we Christians, one of the beauties of the gospel is that um, we, doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, we are all one in Christ. And so when we come to the church of Jesus Christ and we are Christians, we are leveled in the gospel at the cross, right? We are all equally sinners and we are all equally justified regarding, regardless of what your background is, what your social status is, your race or anything like that. And so in many Many real ways, the Christian church, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the solution to the racial disharmony in our society. And we as a church have a responsibility, I think, to model that between ourselves. And so, listen, I want to pray for our community, especially what's going on in Buffalo this week and some of the shootings and things that have been motivated by race, and uh, ask that the Lord's kingdom would come. So would you join me? Father, I am thankful for uh, the gospel of Jesus that has uh, buried the racism. I'm thankful for guys like John Newton who were slave traders, and then, Father, you saved him. And I pray, Father, that this guy who has picked up a gun and decided to shoot other people because they didn't look like him, Lord, I pray that you would save him in the same way. I pray also, Father, for the communities that are affected by this sort of thing. Would you bring your gospel to bear on them? I pray that you'd raise up lots of pastors this weekend in particular as they proclaim the word to people in those communities, Father. Would would people find hope and joy in the prospect that one day every tribe, nation, and tongue will gather before the throne of God and we will be wearing the same clothes, waving the same palm branches, and singing the same praise to our Lord and King. So we pray, Father, for that day. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We commit our time to you now as we want to study your word. Would you teach us, Father? Use the feeble uh, words of a feeble man, Father, to communicate your great truths to these dear people, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 19, you need a Bible, Luke chapter 19, verses uh, 1 to 10. Listen, we are in the midst of a series on, on money. Uh, this is the third one in that series. The beginning was a story about a guy called the Rich Fool, the next one was a guy called the Rich Ruler. And then uh, this week we're talking about a guy named Zacchaeus. I want to show you something really interesting, though. All three, of those, all three of those passages come from Luke's gospel. And I want you to show you something really quickly before we get into this about what Luke does in his gospel. That if you sat down and you read through the whole of his gospel in one sitting, one of the things that you would notice when it comes to what he says about money is this. In uh, Luke chapter 12, like I said, we have a story about a guy who is not named. Uh, he, he is just called the rich 
the rich fool. We, we call him that because Jesus shows up and tells this story about him. And at the end, this guy has built bigger barns and Jesus tells him that you're a fool for doing this instead of being rich toward God. Doesn't have a name though. Luke uh, chapter 16, a passage that we didn't study, has a story about a guy who is, uh, he's called in the history of church just the rich man. In fact, many people use his Latin, the Latin for rich man, to call him Dives. Lazarus and Dives. Lazarus is a guy who's a poor and he sits at the gate of the rich man's home. And every day the rich man comes through and he passes by. This guy is so poor, Lazarus, that the dogs come and lick his sores. So I, like, really, really poor. He's even below the docks. Well, they both die. Lazarus ends up uh, in basically heaven and um, Dives, or the rich man, ends up in, in hell, in torment. Um, what I want you to notice, though, is that he has no name. Lazarus has a name, but the rich man, he, he, he doesn't have one. Luke chapter 18, a passage that we studied last week, is a story about this rich ruler, this young man who comes to Jesus and he asks him a question, what, do I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is like, you need to keep the commandments. He's like, I did all of those because I'm amazing. And Jesus says, well, I don't know if you've kept the first one. Um, you shall have no other gods before me. So he puts that to the test. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And the guy walks away sad, but notice he doesn't have a name either. He's just in our history of the church, and even now, we, we, we just call him the rich, the rich ruler. Uh, no name, no name, no name. And then in Luke chapter 19, the last story in Luke's gospel about a rich guy, we get a story about a rich tax collector who is named. Zacchaeus, little Zac. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like Luke is saying, look, if you want the big picture of, the, of how we should understand money and our possessions, if you want the big picture, the people who will be remembered are the ones who do with their money and possessions what Zacchaeus does. You want to have a name? You want to be known before God? Be Zacchaeus, which of course raises the question, um, what's he like? Well, this is his story, Luke chapter 19, um, verses 1 to 10. What I want to do is I just want to tell you this story, okay? I'm going to walk through it and give you some illustrations and stuff to give you a piece, an understanding of what's going on. It's a magnificent story with all sorts of richness in the detail, uh, and then I want to give you the single point. There's only one point to this sermon, right? I'm not going to give it to you now because you'd leave. But there's one point to the sermon. But then I want to illustrate with five different illustrations, five different examples throughout the rest of the Bible, how central this point is to the way we should understand things as Christians, okay? So a story, then a point with five illustrations. Here we go. Here's the story. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. He, speaking of course of Jesus, he entered Jericho. Jericho is at the bottom of, a, of the long hill that went to Jerusalem. It was where, the, where Herod had his summer palace. So I don't know, it's like kind of like Palm Springs if you've ever been there, that kind of place that's, you know, people go to, to, to vacation. 
Uh, Jericho was a well-traveled town. It, uh, because it came down from, the, the, the road came down. You guys remember the, the um, parable of the Good Samaritan? That's, stole, that's told on the hill that comes down from Jericho to Jerusalem. So this big hill comes down, and it's the main thoroughfare that Jews used to take to get to the temple and to leave the temple. And the reason for that is because nobody ever wanted to go to Samaria in the north because Samaritans, you know, they're, they're, we got to stay away from them. They're like the people from Ohio. Yuck, you know, we got to go around Ohio. To, I've never been to Ohio, by the way. It's probably beautiful, but it's near Illinois, and that's kind of my point here, right? So in order to get around... Samaria, you'd come down the hill into Jerusalem or into Jericho and go north along the Jordan River Valley. So, so if you're a religious Jew and you want to go sacrifice stuff up at the temple, you're going through, you're going through Jericho. This is very important. This is very important for a reason. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. And the thing you need to know about Zacchaeus is that he was a chief tax collector. And he was rich. Now, the reason he's rich is because he's a chief tax collector. Look, here's the way it worked. Um, the way the, Ro- the Romans come and they basically uh, uh, occupy uh, 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 Israel. They, they occupy Judea, the, the area. And so the Roman occupation is not liked at all by any Jewish people. It's like if Canada came and they occupied us, we'd be like, yeah, like that's going to happen. But let's assume that would happen. They'd come down with, you know, their big guns and stuff, and, and they occupy here. Uh, we're not going to like the Canadians because they come and they do that. Well, similarly, that was the case. But the way that the Romans would govern is that they would govern through local people who were who were kind of known by the locals. So if the Canadians came, they would come and they would say, hey, some of you Americans, you guys want to collect the taxes and stuff for us and keep the peace. And believe it or not, there are some Americans who'd be like, "Mm, yeah, this is a quick way to get get rich. This is a way for me to, you know, be treated better. So I'll do it. This is Zacchaeus. He's one of the guys who's basically said, look, I'm willing to collect the taxes and all these things for you. When I collect the taxes, though, I am going to add a little bit of a surcharge on the back end of it, right? Because, you know, so it's worth my while. So Zacchaeus is a guy who is a chief tax collector, right? Which means that he sits on top, right? He's the one who has people who work for him. And uh, what does this look like to you? Like he's basically... He's basically running Amway here, okay? So this, this is Zacchaeus. And he's getting rich because of all the money coming up to him from all of his underlings. And guys, because Jericho is such a traveled area that one of the biggest taxes people would collect was a traveling tax based upon all the stuff that you were carrying. And you were always carrying lots of stuff because you were going to worship up in Jerusalem and sacrifice your stuff to God. I don't know if there's anyone richer than the chief tax collector of Jericho. 
filthy, stinking rich, but on the backs of the oppressors, but, 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 but benefiting from the oppression and overcharging you. How would you feel if I were the guy, because I'm kind of, I'm Canadian too, and I'm like, yeah, Canada, I'll do it for you. And I went to you and said, oh, yeah, uh, I need you to pay me this much, plus a little surcharge, so I'm sponsoring the Canadians, and I'm also charging you too much. You'd like me, yeah? Well, this was Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Wouldn't you be seeking to see that too? Like if you hear the stories about this Jesus, uh, he's healing people. He is delivering people from demonic possession. He is even spending time with prostitutes and tax collectors. So if you're a tax collector and nobody likes you, Aren't you interested to see the show that this guy puts on? You might even be included in the show and be permitted to watch it. So as word has traveled about Jesus, this guy is like, oh, I, I, I actually want to go see that. So he shows up with all the crowds in Jericho so that he could see what's going on with this Jesus. But on account of the crowd, right, because Jesus got people all over him all the time. You know, they, they barely give him any space at all. Like, he's the biggest rock star walking out down through the city. And everybody's like, ooh, ooh, Jesus, Jesus. I got this for Jesus, Jesus. But on account of the crowd, he could not. He couldn't see him because he was small in stature. Um, those of you who are larger, like, like me, taller, bigger, um, you guys know, you know the small people who, when you're in a big crowd, because they're smaller, they feel like they can squeeze through you and get to the front. Yes? Do you know? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. When those people come by and say, excuse me, God made me small so I get to be in the front. You're like, mm, no. Right? No. No, you're not doing that. Can you imagine if that small person was the tax collector who nobody liked? When he gets in the middle of the crowd, you're like, This is Zacchaeus. You, know, you can see him in the back going, ooh, can somebody put me on their shoulders? So he ran on ahead. And he climbed up into a sycamore tree <laughs> to see him. Sycamore trees were these great climbing trees. If you were a little kid and you had a sycamore tree in your backyard, it'd be great because they kind of go up and then they spread out, their limbs spread out, real thick limbs all over the place. But, you know, don't think evergreen tree where the guy's up at the top of the tree and it's like 50 feet high. No, we're, he, he is just kind of above the heads of everybody. Now, here's what's interesting. <laughs> Nobody laughed when I just read that, that the tax collector went and got into the tree. We all should have laughed or gasped. And here's why. Uh, important, influential, wealthy men in the Roman world and in the ancient world in general did not do anything that would denigrate themselves before their lessers. If you're an important guy, you don't run to anybody, they run to you. Just why when the father of the prodigal son goes running after his son, it's like, what are you doing? You don't do that as a wealthy landowning father in, the, in this time. 
You know, it's like if the Pope were there and he picks up his skirt and goes, oh, hello. You don't do that. Pope doesn't do that. And yet here you have Zacchaeus. Important Zacchaeus. Not able to see. So he goes forward. He climbs up a tree. Guys, do you know that on the, on the bottom of this man is a tunic that is open at the bottom? They didn't have undergarments like you and me. This guy, this important man, has climbed up a tree, and people are like, what are you doing? (laughs) Okay, to give you an idea as to how outside the bounds this is, um, I'm going to tell you one of my most embarrassing uh, moments. Don't share it with anyone. (laughs) So uh, I uh, I was leading a mission trip, in, uh, in China at one point, with China, Hong Kong, and um, we were flying back, Cathay Pacific Airlines. I was seated, they had to split a lot of us up into the plane to get us all seated, and so I was seated in the side, right, two, two on the side, three in the middle, two on the side. I was seated on the side at the window next to the smallest Chinese lady I have ever seen. Didn't speak a lick of English, didn't speak any English. She was traveling, I think, to Vancouver, British Columbia, so that she could uh, spend some time with her family who was bringing her over. I only found that out because somebody who was with near me spoke Chinese, and I interacted with her through that person before that person sat down. But she was very small, and she would look at me and smile. But compared to me, like, I'm four of her. Like, she was so little. I'm four of a lot of people, but especially her. So she, she's sitting down there next to me, and um, let's just say that the Chinese food in Hong Kong did not agree with me very well. And so if you've ever been on a plane and you've eaten something that does not agree with you, you can understand the challenge, and this is why you get an aisle seat. But I didn't have an aisle seat. It wasn't an option. So anyway, early on in the flight, I kept tapping her and saying, excuse me, and I'd go to the bathroom and tapping her, excuse me, and go to the bathroom. It's a long flight, though, so at one point, she starts to fall asleep, right? So she's got her little earplugs in. She's fallen asleep, right? And she's just so peaceful sitting there. And I, you know, immediately was like, oh, dear. Oh, dear. I have to go. So I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, well, I don't really want to pester this. We've already pestered her four times and she's sleeping so serenely. Okay. And I looked at how small she was and I was like, there's surely there's a way for me to get around her, like without waking her up. So I grabbed the armrest looked at her to make sure she was in good, good, good and asleep. And I lifted my leg over. <laughs> so that she's facing me. And I'm straddling over the top there. And I reached over and grabbed the other thing. And when I grabbed the other armrest, this woman's eyes, <laughs> and there was this intimate moment between the two of us <laughs> that she thought, Oh my gosh, this monstrous white man has just decided. And I was like, oh, and I flipped my leg back over and I didn't have time to stop and apologize because, you know, and I went all the way to the bathroom and I came back and she was sitting peacefully, serenely. And I came back this time, I tapped her on the shoulder and she opened her eyes and went, oh, and she gets up and she walks kind of further back, like so I can't see him. So I had to sit next to this lady the rest of the flight. And every time I had to go, I'd tap her on the shoulder and she like would immediately get up and run, run down. 
So I'm on this plane, though, with a whole bunch of people who just went to Hong Kong. And some of the folks from, the, from that area were coming back with us. And the people from that area, if you've ever gone to the part, eastern part of the world, it's an honor-shame culture. The honored pastor does not, under any circumstances, straddle the little Asian lady. Not at all. So after the flight, they were like, oh, I can't believe you did that. That was so dishonorable. I can't, you should probably apologize to your whole church for this. I said, I'm not going to apologize. I'm just going to tell the story, right? <laughs> but this is, this is what's going on. This, this man, he's supposed to be important. Even though people don't like him, they, he's supposed to be an important, influential man. And here he is climbing up a tree and everyone can see all the stuff. What are you doing? You're such an idiot. And Jesus was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, and at this point, every one of us should be going, I know what he's going to say to him. What are you doing, you disgusting sinner? Like, what? Does everybody see this guy? He's gross, right? Zacchaeus, he said. I don't know how he knows his name. But he does. Hurry and come down. Oh, thank you, Lord. For I must stay at your house today. See, you invite people over to your house or you offer to go to their house when you're saying we're friends, right? Oh, you can come and stay at my place. Right? We have an extra room. Oh, come over to my house and we'll have a meal. What am I saying to you? I'm saying, I want to be your friend. I want to know you. Especially in those days. Hey, listen, I want to share hospitality with you. I want you to come to my house and we'll spend. So Jesus invites himself over. And this is a way of saying, hey, social pariah. Hey, tax collector. Hey, the guy who everyone thinks is disgusting. I'm coming to your house today because I want to be your buddy. Uh, so he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully, right? I bet he did. Oh, oh my gosh. I can't believe he even talked to me. And when they, they being the crowd, saw it, they all grumbled. This is a great Greek word. It's gungudzo. Doesn't it sound like grumbling? Murmur, murmur, gungudzo, gungudzo, gungudzo. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Like he, when I was uh, young and I came to, I was, went to Sunday school, right? I, I came to faith in Christ kind of in my high school years, but when I was young and they were in Sunday school, they used to sing a song about Zacchaeus, right? Some of you might know it, okay? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And when the Savior passed that way, he said something about the tree. He said, Zacchaeus, you come down. For I'm going to your house today. I'm going to your house today. And it makes it sound, honestly, it makes it sound like Zacchaeus. is He's so cute, this little Zacchaeus guy. I like him. I'd like to take him out for lunch. Let me tell you right now, that is a crazy, crazy song that does not in any way capture the scandal of this. 
He is not a cute little man. He is a wicked oppressor of the people. Nobody likes him because he's wicked. If there's anybody in that crowd who Jesus should not talk to, it's this guy. Hey, but I want to go to your house. You and me, we're boys. Absolute scandal. What you've got here is an amazing act of grace on the part of Jesus. And a man who did not deserve anything has all of a sudden been welcomed by God himself. So what does he do? Well, Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, guys, I don't know where he's standing. It might be at the bottom of the tree. We might have fast forward to his house and he invited all his tax collector buddies over. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's halfway through the meal, you know. I like, propose a toast to Jesus. But he stood and he said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. So uh, in your context, my context, you have two cars, he gives one. You have two houses, he gives one. You, give, yeah, you have uh, an extra piece of property, he splits it in half and subdivides it into the other. You got 10 shirts, he gives five. Half of everything you own, he gives. That's a lot for a rich tax collector like him. And I give it to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, oh, you've defrauded people, buddy. I restore it fourfold, four times the amount that they were taken. I'm, I'm going to pay it back to them. Whoa. That's a remarkable response. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. Jesus is not saying here, whoa, based upon that really cool thing you just did, I'm going to offer you salvation. You earned it, buddy. He's saying the same thing I would say if I walked up to an apple tree and it had a whole bunch of apples on it, and I'd say, now, how about them apples, right? Come on, that's pretty good. Uh, Look at all the apples as proof that this tree is healthy. And so I'm making a statement of fact based upon what I'm observing. Jesus is say, saying, I see salvation has come to you because of what you've just done in response to it. Like I know that the gospel has hit you because of the fruit it's born in the way that you've used your money and possessions in response. Today, salvation's come to this house. Since he's also a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost, even the rich ones. See, what's uh, impossible with men is possible with God. What a great little story. So what's the point? What's the point? Um, I'm going to tell you simply this. This is a story about how the grace of Jesus transformed a wealthy man's use of his money and possessions. It's what Luke intends it to be. Let me tell you a story at the end of my gospel. I've given you lots of negative examples of rich people, rich fools, rich rulers, rich men and Lazarus. Let me give you an example now of what the right way is. Let me tell you about Zacchaeus who responded to the grace of Jesus with a transformed viewpoint about his money and possessions. Or to put a really fine point on it, our generosity toward others 
will rise or fall based largely on our sense of God's generosity toward us. Please, please hear that. Our generosity toward others will rise or fall based largely on our sense of God's generosity toward us. See, if you have little generosity, it's probably an indication that you think that you weren't given that much grace and generosity by Jesus. If your response to Jesus is muted, you probably think what Jesus did for you is kind of muted. But if you have a grand response, like half your goods response, it's probably an indication that your understanding of what Jesus has done for you is magnificent. So listen, if you want to grow in your understanding or your ability and willingness to give more, the answer is not to bully yourself or to indict yourself or to say, oh, I got to do it, I got to do it. Not the duty, but to delight in the gospel. So let me give you five examples of this. Same idea shows up. Not duty, but delight. So um, a negative example is what we just studied last week. I want to show you this. A ruler asked him, this is the rich ruler in Luke 18, a good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? No, no one's good except God alone. But um, you know the commandment. You know, Ten Commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. There's five of them. And he said, look, man, all of these I've kept from my youth. Dude, if there is a person who's righteous around here, it's me. Like the Ten Commandments? Did it. Check. Um. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, uh, one thing you lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. See, I'm not sure whether or not you actually have obeyed the first commandment. Shall I know whether God's before me? So let's put it to the test. But when, when he heard these things, all right, when he heard them, he became very sad. Why are you so sad? He was extremely rich. See, when Jesus says this to this guy who thinks he's righteous, what he hears is, oh man, you're gonna make me do this? This duty? I mean, my whole life I've been following the rules and doing the duty. Figuring out, you know, exactly how I should honor God in these 10 commandments. I've ticked it all off. I'm a righteous guy. I'm not like the tax collector over there. tithe all the right amounts, I do all the right stuff. And Jesus is like, yeah, one more thing, sell it all, give it to the poor and then come follow me. And he's like, no. And he says, he's not gonna do it. And he goes away sad. Why? Because it's just a duty to him. It's just a duty. There's no delight in it. Why is there no delight? Because he doesn't think he needs any grace. A muted, small understanding of the grace that you've received leads to a muted, small, sad understanding of the delight that you have in responding to that grace. There's no delight, it's just duty. Do this. Second example. Um, Isaiah chapter 6. Guys, we just sang uh, this morning a song that was based on this 
Here I am, send me. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. So Isaiah sees this vision. He was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. These are angels. Each had six wings. With, with two, they covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, 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 set apart, set apart, set apart. Three times over to emphasize it, yeah? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Uh, That means the Lord who leads armies, the Lord who is the general of the army of God. He is holy and set apart and morally pure. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is what the angels sing for all eternity over and over again because none, it's never enough. It's never enough. He's that holy. That the repetition of it never gets old. And the foundations and thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, in response to this, woe is me. This is a funeral pronouncement. I'm dead. Kill me now. For I'm lost. I'm a man of of, of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my, look, my, eye, my eyes have seen the king. I can't stand here morally impure like I am in the presence of this morally pure, holy, sovereign, powerful God. I want to disappear. I want to melt away. I feel so disgusting. And then one of the seraphim flew to me And having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. What do we call that? We call that grace, right? I mean, Isaiah doesn't deserve any of it. He's wicked and yet God decides to just grace him. Hey, angel, go and take one over there so this guy can join in the praise. Touch his lips. His dirty, unclean lips. Touch his lips so he can join in the praise. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah, who's been standing there listening to the praise and thinking, I can't give praise back to God like that because if it does, it comes through the unclean lips and he gets ruined. The first thing he says, Here I am! Oh, oh, me! I'll go. You know what the mission is? I don't care. Somebody who is so sinful and sees the glory of God and sees the gap of the forgiveness that's been given to me, is it anything too much to ask? The bigger the grace, the bigger the worship. Do you see duty in this line at all? Do you see, oh man, okay. Or do you see delight? Oh, oh, I get my chance. I'll go. Yeah, no one's going to listen to you. I don't care. Number three. Um, This is a story about the Apostle Paul who's um, trying to reach people with the gospel and he's gone into the town Philippi and he's going to, he's, Gone down to the, as you'll see, the river to find some people who were part, part of the Jewish community. 
On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to, to the women who had come together. So they're together to pray in, in the river, probably a place that many of them are used to being because that's where you do the washing. And, and one of the women who heard us was a woman named Lydia. She was from the city of uh, Thyatira. Sorry, uh, Venice, New York. She's a fashionista. Thyatira was like the center of the fashion industry of those days, right? So Coco Chanel, seller of purple goods. Guys, uh, what do they use purple for in those days? They, they use it to clothe kings. Uh, normal people did not walk around the streets with purple on because it was an indication that you're royalty. And if you pretend to be royalty, the actual royalty will kill you and then take your purple stuff. So she, she makes clothing for kings. I wonder if they pay well. Oh, you bet they do. Wealthy fashionista. She's a worshiper of God, which means that she is not Jewish, but she's a Gentile who's on the edge of the Jewish community. She's very interested in the God of Israel. And then the Lord opened her heart. Paul starts preaching, and the Lord opens her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. In other words, she comes to faith in Jesus because God opens her heart, and she can't turn away from the majesty of this Jesus. And after she after she was baptized in her whole household as well, she, oh, these words, urged us, oh, please, begged us, pleaded with us, saying, look, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house. Come to my house and stay, please. I've got all this stuff. I don't know what to do with it now. I used to live for it, but now I don't live for it at all. I've got these purple stuff. You can dress up like a king. Come over to my house. How long can we stay? I don't care. Stay as long as you want. Everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours, Lord. And I'm going to give it to the missionaries because that's, that's what you do, right? Right? Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed. Another strong word. She prevailed upon us. You can see Paul and his companions going, look, it's okay. You don't need to do this. No, please, please. Fine. Fine. We'll come and stay forever and take all your stuff. Don't you see it? Do you, guys, do you see duty in anything that she says, in any way she's saying it? You guys need a place to stay? I mean, I might have some friends or something. And if that doesn't work out, then maybe come over to my house. But please don't make it happen. No, no duty at all. It's just pure delight, pure delight, because the gospel is in her. And this grand, massive grace has led her to say, how can I worship in the same measure? What do I do? I got all this stuff. I'll, I'll use that. A fourth example. Um, I had a friend who told me about uh, an experience that he had when he went to an old, old woman's house. Uh, in his church, they were trying to raise money for, um, for a building campaign. When he went to her house, I mean, she knew, he knew her when she was at church and stuff, but he went to her house to try to explain the pledge card that they were having, you know, how much money am I willing to commit to the new building campaign? Um, this lady on the list, she was a retired woman living in a fixed income in a trailer at the edge of town. And when he found her, 
He saw her tiny yard and her trailer. And then he said, I don't really know if I want to ask her for anything, right? (laughs) She's got nothing. But she invited him in. She invited him in. And they had a really lovely conversation. And then toward the end, he kind of was murmuring and saying, well, it's been really great visiting you. Thank you. And he got up to leave. And she said, oh, wait, 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 wait. I have my pledge card in the refrigerator. Okay. But he was like, you know what? Don't worry about it. Seriously, don't worry about it. I mean, you're not in a state where you could share stuff with with the church or things like that. And right in the middle of his statement, she grabbed him by the collar and she said, don't you dare steal from me the opportunity to give to Jesus. Don't you do it. And he went and got, she went and got the, the pledge. What's wrong with her? I mean, he gave her an out. He gave her an opportunity not to do it. But for her, it wasn't a duty. It wasn't, uh, oh, I have to give this because I'm part of the church. It was a delight. Oh, I get to give something to Jesus and his bride? I know what I'll give as much as I can. Like a widow who drops a couple of mites in. She can't afford it, but she's going to do it. Last one. One of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house. And he reclined at a table. The way they used to sit at tables was on one arm on a pillow, and they'd have their feet kind of behind them. It's a reclining posture. They didn't have chairs and stuff that they sat there with and knives and forks. He reclined at the table, and behold, a woman... Of the city. Wink, wink. Who was a sinner. Just in case you missed the winks. She was a sinner. You probably guess what kind. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, uh, this reclining at the table in a Pharisee's house was a guys only event, guys. This is not the kind of thing that any of the ladies were invited to in that time. Especially not a lady of the city, and especially not a lady of the city who's going to come bursting in with their hair going everywhere. That's a sign that you're of the city, loose. She brought an alabaster flask of ointment. This is perfume. Do you know how much money this costs? This is what she used for her work. It probably costs her, what, two years, three years salary? It's the most expensive and useful thing she owns. She brought in this perfume and standing behind him at his feet, she's, she's weeping like ugly crying. And she began to wet his feet with her tears. That's how many tears were there. It was enough to wash the guy's feet the feet of, of a man who's been walking through the towns of the area with his sandals on and walking in the same place the sheep leave things. And she is wetting his feet with her tears and, and, and she's wiping them with her hair. And she kissed, she's kissing his feet and, and she anointed those feet with, with the ointment, with the perfume. 
This is a crazy act. This is a scandalous act. This is a, an outrageous act of worship for Jesus. People didn't do this to him. And now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, you know, if this man were a prophet, and I highly doubt he is, uh, he would have known what sort of woman this is who's touching him. For she's a sinner. Guilt by association, Jesus. Holy men don't mix with women like this. And Jesus answering, by the way, did anybody ask him a question? (laughs) No, he's like, I got an answer for that stupid thought. And Jesus answering said to him, "Uh, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon said, say it, teacher. Please, I'm, I'm listening, you dirty man who's touching the dirty woman. A certain moneylender, he had two debtors. One of them owed him 500 denarii. denarii is a day, one denarii is a day's wages. So 500 days wages and the other 50 days wages. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, now, which of them will love him more? If I come to your house and I say to you, um, I have two bills in my hand, oh, I'm, going to cancel, I'm going to pay the bills. Here's the first bill. It's a bill for the stamps you bought at the, at the store the other day. It's like two bucks. You're like, oh, that's great. And why are you here? Get off my lawn. The other one is your mortgage. And you're like, oh, oh. Come in, pastor. Come in, honored pastor. Come in. Want to stay here? Want to do anything, right? That's what he's saying. Like, which of them will love him more? And Simon, Simon answered, well, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt, right? The 500 denarii guy. Of course is the case. And Jesus said to him, look, you've judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he turns toward the woman and he says to Simon, right? He's, Simon's over here. He's looking at the woman. He's still talking to Simon. He's looking at this woman. Do you see this woman? And then Simon's like, yes, everyone sees the woman. This is the problem. Well, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. You didn't do the basic hospitality for me. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You, you gave me no kiss. You didn't welcome me with warmth. But from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You, you didn't anoint my head with oil, but she is cheap oil. As a welcome, but she has anointed my feet with her most expensive perfume that she could she gets her living from. Therefore, I tell you, look, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. See, I can see that her sins are forgiven because of the way she's worshiping. It's the fruit of what's gone on in her heart, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, Simon, he loves little. And he said to her, your, your sins are forgiven Our generosity toward others will rise or fall based largely on our sense of God's generosity toward us. If I could just get, if I could just get you to see this, the reason that the church today is so, not just ours, but the reason the church is so muted in its worship, and I don't mean just singing, although I do mean singing. 
The reason the church is so muted in its worship is because our gospel is so little. We think we deserved it. We, we think we're the Simon. We, we think we're the rich ruler. We're not. We're not. We're this woman. We're Zacchaeus. You don't deserve the grace of God. You never did. He didn't look upon you and say, oh, if I could get that person on my team, we'd win. He showed you, me, remarkable, magnanimous grace. It's so big. And if you start to realize how big that grace is, man, the worship gets so big. How in the world do I repay a God who did that for me? How in the world do I respond? What do I have? What do I have? I got all this stuff. God loves a cheerful giver because they're cheerful in the gospel. The Apostle Paul has so many opportunities to convince you to give money in his, in his letters. He never appeals to the law. Never. He doesn't say, well, you guys need to give the money because it says they're in the law. Do it. Are you behind on it? You mean to catch up? Says none of that. You know what he does? You guys aren't giving any money. Let me tell you about the gospel. Let me pray for you that you would know how rich and high and deep and wide is the love of Christ. That your hearts would be full of all the fullness of God. Because if that happens, the worship will come. The worship will come. Brothers and sisters, do you realize how great the grace is? Do you see it? Do you feel it? Because if you do, just let let the worship flow. But if you don't, it'll always be a duty. And you'll always be angry when someone asks for it. Our generosity toward others will rise or fall based on largely on our sense of God's generosity. Let me pray, Lord. I'm thankful for this passage. Your answer to the problems of our lives is grace. It's the knowledge of the gospel. It's a rich, full, flowered vision for what it is that you've done for us. I pray, Father, for my friends. I pray for me. As we walk out of church today and we go about our week and all those sorts of things that you would help us to think upon the grace. Look, look around us. See what you've done in our lives, what we actually deserved and what you've done are such a gap. Lord, I pray that that gap would fuel the worship, Father, that we will say things like, here am I, send me, and that we will, we will love much because we've been loved much, Father. I pray that our view of our money and possessions would be radically altered by the generosity you've shown to us. I pray it in Jesus' name, by the power of your Holy Spirit, amen.